Let's pause and pray. Father God, we humbly approach you in the name of Jesus. We recognize our shortcomings, our failures, our desire uh, to even disobey you. I ask us, Lord, that you would cleanse us, that you'd allow your spirit to teach us, remind us, rebuke us, grow us that you would allow us to, in your mercy and grace, hear your voice. So we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's open before us. Thank you that you have taught us, that you desire for us to know you. Thank you that you have shared um, so much of your glory, your goodness with us. Help us now in these moments to look further into your majesty, your will, um, your power, your presence, and to be changed. Pray that these words of yours would not be sent out in vain, that you would return them fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come to the last temptation here in Matthew 4. And maybe one of the most telling, revealing temptations of the three. Uh, there is much to be said and to see through what Satan attempts to do here with Jesus. And you have to keep in mind with all the temptations that on one hand, uh, Satan is pretty foolish to try and get the Son of God off track. Okay. On the other hand, he chooses to do so in ways that are far uh, more intense and far deeper than we give them credit for on the surface. So as we wrap up the temptations here, <coughs> we need to know that, number one, this is an attempt by Satan himself to get the Messiah off track of fulfilling his role, right, as the Messiah. Number two, there is a great lesson here in following Jesus resisting temptation for us. Okay? Now, Satan's not trying to get us off some sort of messianic track. We're not. The Messiah has come. He's completed his work. Uh, there is an attempt by the evil one and his minions and even our own flesh to get off track in following the will of God to be conformed into the image of the Messiah of his son. So there is direct application for us. And the direct application is really simple. The direct application here is the way to 
uh, do spiritual warfare. I would argue it's the only way to do spiritual warfare. So it's, it's just what Jesus does. Jesus is going to do something here in verse 10 especially, though, that uh, we don't need to attempt to do. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's look at verses 8 through 11 first, and then we'll get into them. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Okay, so first of all, look at what's being offered to Jesus. The kingdoms of the world and their glory. I wrote about this week that the kingdoms of the world and their glory are things that are passing away. They're momentary. They're not even worth comparing with the glory of God. Jesus is very well aware of what his suffering will eventually bring him. It will bring him, uh, it will bring him all the kingdoms and all the universe. But it won't only bring him the rule and authority over those things, that which God already exercises, but it'll bring him uh, the worship of all the nations. This is something that Satan wants. So notice in verse 9, the temptation that Satan makes, he says, I will give you these things. He's, he's trying to give him a shortcut to receiving what he's going to receive in Revelation 4. Jesus knows he's going to receive these things. Satan knows he's going to receive these things. But if he can do it without suffering, then that's what he wants. A shortcut. And we've already established this, that you don't shortcut suffering. as he's trying to get Jesus to do. And if the Messiah is willing to say, no shortcuts, suffering is the way, I'm the suffering servant, and that's the way that these things will be won, then why would we shortcut suffering? But the intriguing thing about this in verse 9 is Satan says, I'll give you these things, assuming that he has authority over them. And the Bible would say that, you know what, some... Some what he does. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Talking about Satan. John 14, 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. This is Jesus here describing Satan as the ruler of this world. John 16, 11, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What about Paul? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 2, 2, uh, in which he once walked, talking about sins, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What about John? 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there is a reality to the fact that Satan does rule, so to speak, here. Now, understand that he rules under the sovereignty of God, so he has a very short leash, but he is given some sort of ability to influence and do some sort of work here. Now, what's going to be frustrating about that is that's all going to be used, right, to accomplish God's will, but he's still doing it. So he is influencing the kingdoms of our world. So we should never fully trust, right, the kingdoms of this world. They lie under that power. That great influential power, which I would say most kingdoms, if not all of this world, uh, <coughs> do not follow Christ's example in resisting the evil one. Therefore, if they're not resisting the evil one, then what are they doing? They're being influenced by the evil one. So for a time... Satan is here, working throughout every kingdom. So Jesus isn't going to argue with him about that. That's a reality. But here's what they're going to discuss. He says in verse 9, he'll give him the kingdoms, the rule, the authority over the kingdoms, now if you fall down and worship me. The, the key question to this whole temptation is this. Why is Satan willing to give up rule and authority of kingdoms for worship? It should signal to you and I that whoever is being worshipped is the one that has the supreme authority and glory over the universe. That's why he's willing to exchange it because if Jesus worships Satan, he in essence is telling all the kingdoms that he has rule and authority over, he's the greatest treasure. Satan's the greatest treasure. So then everything has to come in line with that. This is, is foolish for Satan to try and get uh, the Son of God off track, but this would be the way to do it. This is what Satan wants. He wants to usurp God. He wants to be in place of God. That's the whole reason he was thrown out of heaven. So here's his last final attempt in Jesus' weakened fleshly state to do it. Now, he's going to look for some more opportune times to throw the Messiah off track, but they're going to prove fruitless. So, John Piper has written a book recently called Come, Lord Jesus. It's on the second coming of Christ, but he spends a good amount of time in chapter 4 talking about this temptation and how it has to do with Jesus' glory and his coming. And suffering leads to that glory. John Piper says, The one who is worshipped over all is the one for whom all exists. It is not glorious to simply rule. There's a lot of people ruling in the world today 
that aren't glorious, in fact, they're hated, a lot of them, by their own people, even in America. But to be worshipped and loved for ruling, that's glorious. Worship is what we hold as greatest treasure, what's what we revere, admire, respect, value, and swear allegiance to. And so if Jesus says that's Satan, then where is the world supposed to look? To him. But Jesus resists that in this way. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So in resisting this temptation, Jesus maintains the fact that God alone is worthy to be worshipped. And he's going to maintain that through suffering, actually. He's going to continue to suffer instead of taking the shortcut because God alone is worthy. God alone is true. God has promised what will become of his suffering, how he'll vindicate him. Jesus knows he'll inherit the universe, but this is how it's going to happen. He quotes here from Deuteronomy again. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. I want you to see the difference in how Jesus quotes it and how it's written. In Deuteronomy 6.13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. There's a word there that's not in place when Jesus quotes it here in verse 10. He's interchanged fear for worship. And as I am beginning this journey of of better understanding the fear of the Lord, one of the very first things I've come to see is that the fear of the Lord is synonymous with worship of Him. And that we only have one category for fear. What we're scared of, what we're worried about, what we're frightened by. But we have to keep in mind that there's a few categories of fear. There's sinful fear, and there's right fear. Sinful fear of the Lord would look like this. In 2 Kings 17, uh, the people of God are, are inundated with idol worship and they're, they're just giving themselves over to the cultures around them. And notice what it says here in 2 Kings 17, 32. It says, They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, which are places of idol worship, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. This fear of the Lord is not worship. How do we know that? Because they're not worshiping God. They have idol worship other false gods, things made by human hands. So the fear of the Lord that they have here is that they're scared of him, right? They want to see what his commands are and maybe try and do those alongside their worship of other idols. But they're not drawn to him. They're not giving him soul worship. 
Look at James 2.19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. They have a fear of the Lord. They have a fear of God. It doesn't result in worship. It results in terrifying, debilitating fear. Do you see the, when, when Jesus confronts demons in the scriptures, what do they do? They scream. They know what he's going to do. They know his authority and power over them. They know what's coming. But it doesn't draw them to worship him. Now, right fear. Jeremiah 32, 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Jeremiah 33, 9, And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth, who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Hosea 3, 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Fear of the Lord, biblical fear of God, draws his people into worship. Because they revere, respect, and understand that he alone is worthy of such adoration. That, that he alone by the counsel of his own will, upholds the universe by his own word. That his disciples even recognized, they told Jesus, who are we to go to? You alone have the words of life. That only in him is their safety. Only in him is their goodness. Only in him is their holiness and righteousness and justice. And outside of him, you'll find all of that directed towards your condemnation. So we respect that he's the supreme authority, but not only that, that he is the supreme object of worship. That he alone is worthy. Look at a scene from Jesus' life here where this is modeled. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and what's the result? They glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God had, has visited his people. When the fear of the Lord grips a people, worship happens. I don't know what's going on with that revival in Kentucky. I hear positive reports and I hear negative reports. I don't know. But I do know this. You'll know it when the fear and respect and adoration of him grips a people by how they respond. They don't hide themselves under rocks or in the mountains like Jesus says people will do at the last day. No, they run to him. We finished 2 Thessalonians a while back. And what does that tell us about the second coming of Christ? We'll meet him as he's coming in. His people 
meet him in his glory, in his victory parade as he comes in to reign over the universe in goodness and righteousness and justice, we go to him. Worship. So maybe you can give yourself a test in your own hearts. If, if you want to be somebody who fears the Lord like the great men and women of the Bible that we that's characteristic of them. It's said of them they fear the Lord. Is it sinful fear? Are you terrified? Or has perfect love cast out fear in your heart of him so that you run to him? Even though you know that he is the most powerful, unstoppable force in all the universe, you run to him. Does the fear of the Lord grip you in how you worship? How do you respond to him? People of all nations and tribes and tongues will see Jesus on the great day of the Lord and they will be gripped with fear. But there will be a distinguishing mark between two different types. Everyone will bow the knee. Everyone will confess Jesus is Lord. But some will be gathered with him and some will be sent into eternal destruction. One is terrified of what they're seeing and one is glorying, rejoicing in what they're seeing. The fear of the Lord has to be right in your heart for you to rightly worship. So, as I said earlier, uh, Jesus proves, or proves that even though Satan has power, but not denying his ability to give him the kingdoms, give the kingdoms to whoever he wants to, God alone is to be worshipped, signaling that God alone has all authority and glory. You proclaim to the world who holds that position in your heart by how you live and what you resist. Your faith will tell people whether God is worthy or not. The way you conform to this world or the way you conform to Christ will tell us whether or not God alone is to be worshipped or it's someone else or something else. We're in the world as his people, but we're not of the world. Everything that we do, everything that we buy, every place that we go, uh, has to be filtered through God alone is worthy. If my life is to be lived in worship of Him and fear of the Lord, then all of it should be worked out to proclaim that He alone is worthy. Or is someone else worthy? Is your job worthy? Is your bank account worthy? Is your health worthy? Is your status worthy? 
is your family. You want to be in that place. Even good things can take the spot of worship in your life. You have to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Who is worthy? If it's him, then he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of everything. And it's him alone you fear, which allows you to not fear anything else. You still struggle with it, but allows you to serve him first and not other people or other things. Kind of like you can't serve God in money. Which one do you fear? You fear losing money more than you fear losing God? What is it? Who's worthy? We have to ask that question over and over and over again. Notice in verse 10, something I want to point out. Uh, Jesus says, be gone, Satan. I would argue that's not the way you and I need to do spiritual warfare. He's the Messiah. He can say, leave. He can tell dead people to get up. He can command demons to go leave this man and go into those pigs. He gives the commands throughout the universe. You and I don't need to pick up on that as our, as our, in our repertoire of spiritual warfare. You and I need to pick up on knowing Scripture for spiritual warfare. We do battle by standing on the truths of God, not by pretending that we have his authority to do whatever we want to do. Read Acts 19. It doesn't work out that way. But if we proclaim what's true and stand on it, then what happens? James 4, 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist him? By just telling him to leave? In Jesus' name, get out of here. No. Share some truth that he tries to twist and that he tries to manipulate for his good. No, you stand on what God has said. That's how you resist him. He'll tempt you with whatever. Hey, it'd be, it'd be good for you to do this. It'd be good for you to to go meet that woman that's not your wife. Oh, it'd be good for you to maybe cheat on your taxes over here because the government, they don't have to do with it anyway. What are you going to say to that? You're going to resist him with the truth. Think of that full armor of God that you have in Ephesians 6. What's that sword in your hand? That's the Word of God. Look at how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 5, 8-10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so he's out there, on the loose, seeking someone to devour. He's like a man-eating lion. There was a movie that just came out recently. It was kind of like a modern-day uh, Cujo or whatever, and that's a, a lion, is a man-eating lion, and he's got this family trapped in their 
Jeep or whatever. So they can't leave. Or they do, and they try and find, I don't know. Anyways, but think of that. Like, he's waiting. Who's going to give me an inch here? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. What's our faith built on? What God said. Who God is. And we're supposed to do this in the midst of what? Suffering. This is the experience of the brotherhood throughout the world. It's not just on you. It's not unique to you. This is the way that his subjects are treated in this world, in this foreign land. It's going to be difficult. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Notice verse 11. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know what ministering means? It means to serve. They were probably serving him with physical sustenance. Maybe he was wounded a little. They're bandaging. I don't know. They're, they're helping him restore him to physical strength. And notice what Peter says. He says, The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will bind you up. God will heal you. God will bring you to the land of the living again. God will wipe away every tear from your eye. God himself will make sure that you are restored as you have stood firm in your faith in the midst of suffering and resisted the devil. Or however the temptation got to you. Standing firm on God's word or the truth will not only cause Satan to flee, but it will guarantee you that God will restore you. So you bank on that. You have faith in Him. Even when the shortcut looks really good, like, okay, I can stop this 40 days of not eating, being alone by myself in the wilderness, and having to deal with the devil. I could get out of this. No. That's not what God said to do. In this particular instance in Jesus' life, the Messiah must uh, suffer. He must be tempted, and He must prove to be the rightful son of God, unlike Moses, unlike Israel, who failed the test in the wilderness. Jesus will not fail the, fail the test. And listen, it's not, it's, it's not because he manifested some miraculous sign or said some uh, crazy combination of words. How did he pass the test? He believed the word of God. That's something that you and I can do as new creations in Christ. But it requires that we know it. That's why the fighter verses that we're memorizing every week are called fighter verses. They're going to help us resist temptation. I want to hear your testimony. 
of how whatever verse you memorized, whatever week, hopefully all of them, has helped you resist the evil one. Because you believe it. So let's proclaim to the world that we believe this gospel. We believe God's truth. We believe that the word is true by having faith in it. And let's know it. That's what I'm trying to do with you here. Is, is teach these things to, to my own soul and to you so that we'll be people who are equipped not only for every good work but to resist the temptation and the evil one because we're looking forward to what Jesus is looking forward to. An eternal end to suffering in glory in the presence of God. You don't get there any other way. So may God strengthen you, establish you in your faith that you could do that. I pray you'd respond to him now uh, in these brief few moments and then we'll stand and sing together.